For those on Zoom, we're in Mark chapter 8, verse 29 to 33. They're quite an interesting passage. And uh, you can imagine Peter would remember that conversation very vividly, word for word. Uh, such a rebuke from the Lord. That's what we're considering this morning. Now let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we consider his word. Lord, we thank you so much for your precious word. It's through this word that we get to hear from you, that we get to know you. Well, Lord, would you be with us now and by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, help us to hear from you. Lord, speak this morning. We want to hear from you. We don't want to hear any other voice. Be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's consider this passage. And, uh, you know, just to help us to think about what's going on in this passage, here's a really common sense illustration. You know, if you ever talk to somebody and you use certain words, and they'll use certain words, but the words are not defined. You haven't done the work as you talk with them, especially when you talk about, you know, some pretty serious, sensitive stuff. You want to make sure you're defining your words properly. And I, had an, I have an example of this, you know, in my recent time. You know, we were, we were organizing a meeting together and I sent an email out and I said, we're going to be meeting at the Auckland Gardens. Now, I meant the Auckland Botanical Gardens. That's in South Auckland, way down south, right? Pretty far away from other places in Auckland. But somebody misunderstood and thought, oh, Auckland Winter Gardens in the Auckland domain. Now that's right in central, next to the museum. That's a, that's a 40 minute drive, probably an hour with traffic, which is constant in Auckland. But you can see there is an example of, we both say Auckland Gardens, I'll see you there. But we didn't define it specifically enough. And what happened was the meeting obviously did not go ahead because I'm there in the Auckland Botanical Gardens waiting and they're there in the Auckland Winter Gardens, waiting. And then we'll call them and say, oh, what, you meant that one? Well, that, I thought it was this one. So right there, you can see that words have to be properly understood. Words can be misunderstood, if not defined clearly enough. And you see what's so interesting in this passage is that the Lord Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? <clears throat> and Peter says, decisively, you are the Christ. You are the chosen one. You are the promised one of old. You are the Messiah. And Jesus, right there in verse 31, and he began to teach them. What's going on here? The connection. He wants them to understand clearly exactly what it means to be the Christ. He is not leaving that term for Peter and the disciples to fill in the definition of themselves. Because... They could very easily fill in the wrong understanding. In fact, we do see that Peter did have the wrong understanding. Because as Jesus begins to teach him what it means to be the Christ, what has the Christ come to do? Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Because he's working with a different definition of this word Christ. He has a different understanding of this long promised one that the Old Testament prophets all spoke about. And Jesus is not wanting him, and of course, by extension, anybody to have a wrong understanding of who he is and what he has come to do. Now, that is a very interesting topic because even in our world now, just do a Google search, just search the real Jesus. Oh, there are many hundreds of books claiming to you that I've got the real story about Jesus. I've got a real theory to tell you about who he is. He was a historical this and that. He was a political this and that. He was a moral teacher this and that. And yet, what is so interesting is that why don't we just let the Lord tell us what he has come to do? 
And this is exactly what he's doing to Peter and to the rest of us this morning. He is here to tell us exactly who he is and what he has come to do. He is not leaving it up to chance. And he is not leaving it up to human misunderstanding to fill in the gaps. That's what we're seeing here. He began to teach them. And this really in Mark's gospel, if you look at the, the structure of it, is a real turning point. Right in the middle, Mark chapter 8 out of 16 chapters, this is really the turning point. This is the climax. This is everything that Mark is building up to. And then after this, everything flows from this. What Jesus is telling us as primary to his identity being the long promised one. So this is very crucial for us to understand. Well, okay, Lord, tell us exactly who you are and what you've come to do. This is the primary thing. And we must pay careful attention to what he says, rather than perhaps you've got your own theories about the Lord. You've read certain things on the internet. Well, look, we all know you would, if you met somebody new, give them the courtesy to introduce themselves to you. If you came to me and says, well, look, look at me up and down, Han Lee, you're a Chinese man. You must be good at this and that. We would say that's very politically incorrect. That's stereotyping. You would allow the person themselves to tell you who they are. We must do the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look closely at what he has to say. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the son of man, which is a, a actually a very important designation. It's a title because in, in Daniel, especially he sees visions of one, the son of man who receives all power and authority from God's hand before the throne, the ancient of days. So the son of man is not merely him saying, I'm a human. I'm a son of man, but the son of man, the promised one, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And I love this, verse 32. And he said this plainly. He's so plain and clear about this teaching. Now, this is so shocking to us. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament and you know anything about this long promised one that God had been revealing to the people of Israel, this one who would save them and rescue them and help them and deliver them, this one who, as we read in Jeremiah 33, would be the king who sits on the Davidic throne, would be the priest who brings people near to God. You would not imagine the most important thing to know about him is that he would be rejected and shamefully treated, embarrassingly humiliated, that he would be put upon a cross and executed as a criminal. You would not think of any of those things. You would look at the Old Testament and say, oh, he must be a great, powerful conqueror. He must be a great king. And that is exactly the common ideas about the Christ in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came to this world 2,000 years ago, the Romans were in control over Jerusalem and over all Israel. And most of the people of Israel expected the Christ to be a political conqueror who would defeat the Roman occupiers and free them to be a political power again on earth. But that's not what the Lord teaches us. It not only just says to us that this suffering will happen. Notice the strong word there. The son of man must, must. That's a necessary thing. And very clearly in the Lord's mind, this is an essential thing. This is what must happen to him. He suffers that he be killed and that he rise from the dead. We have to really just marvel and say, why? What is going on here? Why is that the most important thing? Lord, why is this the one thing that we must understand? And just for further confirmation that the early church and all the apostles understood this point. If you read in Acts 17, 
You know, the book of Acts describes how the church began to grow and the, and the apostles went and preached the gospel. In Acts 17, right at the beginning, we see Paul in the city of Thessalonica. And he goes to speak to the Jews about the good news of Jesus. And the summary of his preaching there by the historian Luke, as he writes there in Acts 17 is, he began to explain and prove from the scriptures, the Old Testament, why it was necessary for the Lord, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead. Why it was necessary. So right at the beginning of the church, the gospel, the message that the church had was that it is necessary for this Christ, this Son of Man, the Son of God, to suffer and to be killed and to rise again. We really need to understand this morning that word must. Why? Why is it so necessary? And I, I can think of just simply two points to help us to think about it this morning. It is necessary for our sake, and it is necessary because of what is within God. Those are the two points. And let's take them one by one. Why is it necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be killed and to rise again? Well, I thought actually the best way would be to let God himself speak to us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 53. There is no clearer passage in all of the Old Testament of what the Lord has long declared to us would happen when he sends this Christ of his, this anointed servant. You read with me in Isaiah 53, and you marvel with me that this was written hundreds of years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just read Isaiah 53 from verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I could go on, but I think the point there is made so clearly. Reading this, it looks like a New Testament text. So clear and plain. But this was prophesied through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus came into this world. You see, God is so clear, isn't he? He was put to death. He was put to grief. He was crushed and destroyed upon the cross. Not because he deserved it. Not because the Lord Jesus sinned against God. Not because he was deserving of condemnation to death. But because of us. Because of human beings. And so we see this necessary, this answer to why is it necessary? Why was it a must for our sakes, for the sake of humanity? You see, the scriptures are so clear in telling us that human beings, we have a big, big problem. And it's that God is perfectly good. Why is that such a problem? Because of who we are. We're not perfectly good. 
you know, God doesn't grade on a scale. If you're better than 50% of the humanity, then you're all right with him. He demands perfection. He doesn't lower his standards. He is perfectly good. He doesn't abide any little wrongdoing or evil. And that is a big issue for us. And so because of the utter goodness and holiness of God, every human being, the Bible says clearly, has sinned and fallen short of his standards, his glory. We're in deep trouble. So, so then if any of us are to be made right with him, it is necessary for that sin to first be dealt with. If that sin is not dealt with, if that, if that condemnation and that righteous judgment is not dealt with, none of us could approach God. And if we did approach him and try to get near him, there would be nothing but a righteous anger and displeasure. We know that in our hearts when you read the news and you read of criminals caught red-handed, but maybe because they're powerful and have connections, maybe because they're rich, they escape justice. We read of murderers getting just home detention. And there's something within us that says the crime doesn't fit the punishment. That is injustice. And yet if that's in our hearts, that's an echo of God's perfect justice. And the Bible says there, that's our big problem. That's our deep need. And that is why it was a must for the Lord Jesus to suffer. In fact, right there in the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross, if anyone's ever wondered, how does God view sin? How does God think about wrongdoing and evil thoughts? I wonder how he thinks about it all. There is no clearer picture for you to look at than to simply consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? The Bible tells us that when Jesus was going to the cross, he wasn't there for his own sake. He wasn't there because he sinned. He was there for the sake of sinners. Right? That's what it says. So think of it this way. If ever there was a time for God to bend the rules, it would be when his son was the one in front of him facing all of that justice. If ever there was a time for a judge to be unjust and to bend the rules a little bit, it would be when his own son is standing before him on the dock. If ever there was a time, it would be there. And yet we read when even the perfect son of God in whom in the Trinity, there was perfect delight for all eternity. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. When he took on his shoulders, the sins of the world and stood before God and his holiness and goodness. Do we read of any bending of the rules? No, we read in Isaiah 53, he was crushed. You ask yourselves, how does God really see all the evil and all the wickedness that is rampant in our world? That is so present in my own heart. You don't need to look any further than the cross. Even his own son was not spared when his son took upon his shoulders as a, as a substitute and as a representative of sinful man, the full weight of justice crashed upon him. You see there, it is necessary because of who we are in our sin, because of who God is in his perfection and in his goodness. This is right here, how we need to understand God and ourselves. But right there, we can bring in what Peter has to say. Peter starts to rebuke him. Peter doesn't understand that it was necessary for the Lord Jesus to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead. Well, why in the world would you go through that? No, you're, you're the Lord, you're the teacher, you're the master. If anyone doesn't have to go through that, it would be you. And maybe you can imagine Peter and his, and his zeal, I'll die for you. I don't deserve anything, but you surely not. And you see Peter, 
the Lord rebukes him and says, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. And right there, we're reminded, how do, how do mankind naturally think about sin? The very opposite of everything I've just said from the Bible. We think of it as very excusable. We think of it as, well, it's not so bad. When especially we think of ourselves, we think, but look, I had this reason and I had this upbringing. We got excuses up to the wall. When I look at my own dear children, as young as they are, they've got excuses, infinite, pulling out of their pockets for why they didn't listen to mommy and daddy, for why they did this and that. It is the natural orientation of the human heart to rationalize away the severity of sin, to say this evil is not really so evil. And when you look across this world, that is so common and so obvious. So you can see there, when we consider our sins before God, to think in the ways of mankind is to minimize it. But to see it the way God does it is to realize its severity. And consequently, when you look at the Lord going to the cross, and he looks at the cross as a must. If I am to bring people back to God, this must take place. I hope you will see clearly how God sees sin, how severely an issue it is in the holy eyes of God. That's what we see here. And Peter was rebuked. And we perhaps need to be clearly rebuked from the Lord Jesus himself. How do you view the sin in your life? How do you view it when you come to God and you've got all these things that your conscience tells you? This is incredible. I don't even have to tell you anything. I don't have to know you. I don't have to know what you do in your private times by yourself. Your own conscience will tell you, this is not right. I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. This is, this is something that if there ever did exist a God who was perfectly good, he wouldn't be happy with this. Your own conscience tells you, I don't have to know you to know that that's true. And yet we marginalize it. We try to push it away. We try to make it sound not so bad. We compare ourselves with others who are less than us, perhaps, morally. But I warn you, that is not the way God sees it. We must make sure we see things as the Lord does. So there's that first point, that it is a must because of us, because of who we are, because of our need and our terrible condition. But secondly, it is a must because of what's within God. Now, we, we're looking, aren't we? Jesus went to the cross not for himself. He went to the cross for sinners. To, to satisfy the justice that's you know, set against them because of their sins and because of their evil. Okay, but if you dig deeper, well, what motivated the Lord Jesus Christ to go? Well, why, why did he do that? You know, because if we say that we deserved death for our sins against God, well, you wouldn't say to the Lord Jesus, you must go. Otherwise, it's not fear. You can't say to him, you must save us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fear to us. Well, you know, if we deserved it, the whole question of fairness is out the window. We're talking about a different category. So what is it within God that motivated him to send his son? What was it within Jesus that motivated him to say, yes, I will go? And what motivated the Holy Spirit to fill the Lord Jesus Christ and to sustain him through it all? What motivated God? That is the second must we must answer. And the answer is not any lack within God. There are some who think, well, God rescues us to himself because he was lonely. That is categorically not to be found in the Bible, completely denied. God is perfect and satisfied within himself. So it can't be that. It wasn't that he was lonely. Well, what else is it? Is it because we are just so worthwhile? We know that's not true. Because again, God has no lack. He does not need us. 
And in fact, when you consider the angels in their bright glory, do you know there is no savior for angels? There's no such thing as a Messiah for them. And yet they are for us made of clay and dust. So it couldn't be that. Well, what is it that motivated God? Well, it wasn't anything from outside of him forcing him. It wasn't anything external to him applying pressure to the counsel of God, directing him to do this. So if it isn't anything external to God, it must be something within God himself. And the Bible tells us what it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent his son into the world because of love. Not a love that was forced out of him, but a love that fountained out of his heart freely, fully, without any pressures upon him. It was love. You might say this, was God forced to save us? No. But when God decided, when he said freely of himself, I will save and I will put my love upon humanity, the moment that was decided in eternity passed. The cross of Jesus was a must. You see that there? When God has decided to set his love upon us, that's when the cross became a must. It was necessary. And you see there, proving to us that when the Bible tells us that God is love, and not only that, but his love is set upon sinners, upon fallen humanity, that is no empty boast. You and I both know it is so easy to say those words. I love you. Yeah, I love you. It's so easy for people to say that. It is another thing entirely for it to be backed up with action. It is another thing entirely for people to back it up with action for the rest of their lives. That's why we understand it is no small thing when people do that and back up their words with action. I want you to never think that when the Bible tells us God loves you, that it is just a cliche, something you read to make you feel better, but it has no real impact. No. What we see with the Lord Jesus Christ and his must is that God's love is carried out to the fullest. Is that God's love towards a broken and undeserving and unworthy humanity goes out to the fullest. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't go, oh, I didn't realize that it would have cost me this much. I'm sorry, I have to pull back my declaration. He doesn't ever say that. And not on the cross does he say, I didn't realize it would be this horrifying. I'm sorry, I must pull back. No, as soon as God and himself decided freely in his own fullness of love to rescue this creation back to himself, the cross of Jesus became a must. So really we're understanding why was it necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and to be killed and to be rise from the dead? First and foremost, because of God's great love towards human beings. And that, from that fountainhead of love, flows everything else. Flows the satisfaction of his justice. Flows the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. Flows our being made right with God again, so that he can call us his children, his friend, so that we can be drawn back into his arms. All of these things are downriver to the fountainhead of God's love. That's what we see revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that about the Lord Jesus? When he describes himself coming into this world, his primary purpose was to carry to the fullest God's purposes of love to you as a human being. Are you a sinner here this morning? Then he did this for you. Are you a person who has been alienated from God? 
He came for you. That's what the Bible tells us. There's no need to wonder, oh, but all of that doesn't apply. God is love. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. But does he love me? There's no need to wonder because the Bible says God loved the world. Do you live in this world? Then you are part of that description. You see right there and then what the cross of Christ reveals to every single one of us this morning. But what I want to say to you, if you allow me to leave you with two appeals, if the Lord Jesus Christ in his great love, if God in his great love looked at the cross and all of his horrifying terror and saw it as a must to carry forth his love and to rescue us to himself, can you and I look upon God in response and deal with him with anything less than must in our own hearts? Let me tell you what I mean. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're thinking about these things. Perhaps a family or a friend invited you here. Well, I want you to see that the Bible does not come to you and say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you added this to your life? The Bible nowhere says to you, you're doing so great. Just add Jesus as a little keychain and you'd be even better. No, the Bible says to you, Jesus is an absolute must to you. He is more dear to you than air is right now. Without him, you would have no life with God. You must have him. You see, that's what I mean. If this was a must for the Lord Jesus to go to the cross, it is a must for you. I don't want you ever to be deceived into thinking that God's standards are so low that I can make it up to God by trying to be a good person. You ask the average Kiwi today, if there does exist a God, why would he let you into heaven? Well, because he would see that I tried to be a good person. Really, is God's standard of morality so low you don't just have to be, you just have to try. That is not so with the Lord. His character is not to be slandered like that. You must see if Christ had to go to the cross in order for forgiveness to be a reality, then you must have him. There is no other way to God. In fact, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, in chapter 2, right at the end, he says, if we could have righteousness with God by our obedience to the law, then Christ died in vain. It would be foolishness for him to go to the cross. Imagine this. You're saying to your friend, we need to get up there to the 10th floor of this building. And your friend bolts off and says, I'm going to beat you to the top and starts sprinting up the stairs. And you take the elevator up. You get there before him and he'd be puffed and you say, you're an idiot because you took the stairs when you didn't have to. Could you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, the darling of heaven, going to the cross and he didn't have to? Could you imagine God feeling the searing loss of his son upon the cross, turning his face away? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine it as God? Oh, you didn't realize you didn't have to do that? No. If it was an absolute necessity for the son of God to suffer so that we could be forgiven, then it is a necessity for you to have him for yourself, to believe in him and to receive him, to trust in him so that you would be made right with God. I don't know where your journey is. If you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you've read the Bible for a long time and you're still thinking about it. Maybe this is something new for you. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus has never once said to people, I'm just an optional extra for you to consider. In every sway that he has spoken, he says to human beings, I am an absolute necessity for you. Without me, there is no life. Without me, you cannot come to know God. Without me, you cannot ever hope to live forever in the blessed presence of God. 
but you will head towards the death that you rightly deserve. That is the message of the Bible. And wherever you are, the least I could do is appeal to you to take this seriously, to understand it is a necessity. Now, if that's true on that side, what about for us as believers? If you're a believer here this morning, what does this say to you? What's the same thing? If this was a must in the Lord's love towards us, how can you think of treating your Lord with anything less than a must? If he has given to you such a love and he has looked upon you in all of your unworthiness and sin and filth, and he says, no, I have set my love upon this unworthy person and I will go to the cross. I must go. I will carry out the purposes of my love. I will not turn back my love to them. Can you look upon him and say, oh, that's wonderful. But Lord, to me, you're just an optional extra. I'll come to you when I feel like it. I'll listen to you when I feel like it. I'll, I'll, I'll come near to you and think about you when I feel like it. Can you think of anything more horrifying than such an ungrateful heart? No, dear church, I think it is so logical for us to conclude. If the Lord and his love never turned back, how could we ever have the face to say to him, but to me, you're just an optional extra. That is not love to him. No, I think his love fills our hearts with the only right response, love back to him. We love because he first loved us. And if it was such a must in his love, then can we treat him with anything less than a must? No, I must get near to him. I must follow him. I must make sure I live right for him. I must return thanksgiving to him. I must. How can I do anything less? Except if I didn't, I would just be proving how ungrateful I was. You see there in the scriptures, the motivation for all Christian living is a response of love and thankfulness to the Lord. But you see, we need to see clearly who the Lord Jesus is and what he has come to do. May God help us all to see that clearly. So let's pray now and ask for his blessing. Lord, we thank you so much for your precious word. And we thank you for that. Such an interesting little passage. He spoke these things plainly. Lord, we thank you that your word never hides things and never seen it never gives us the bait and then puts the hook underneath hidden. It tells us plainly right from the beginning that we must have the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was, if it was necessary for him to go to the cross, then it is necessary for us to know him and to believe in him, to have his cross cover our sins. Well, Lord, would you help every one of us to think on these things? And would you draw us close to you through your word? Well, Lord, we give ourselves over to you. We rest ourselves on your goodness and mercy. And we thank you so much for your precious word again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.